Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Well, I think as we as we now know, we really shouldn't trust Stephen King when it comes to like films or or even to be fair, quite a few of his books. Um and that's just facts. But happily there are some pre- there's some pretty good ones even if they're ones that he doesn't 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 really seem to care about. I I agree. Um I I think Stephen King is uh, you know, we, like if if you gave anybody the opportunity to write somewhere in the ballpark of seven hundred thousand books, you'd have a bunch of really good books in there, and a bunch of books that no one remembers the title of. And I think that's kind of where Stephen King's at. Um, yeah, I mean, early King, some real bangers in there. Um, I I will always have a soft spot for Stephen King because one of the very first like pieces of horror media that i properly remember like getting me was um reading misery when i was like 13 oh nice 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 uh which i think arguably i think is i think that's actually the the first stephen king i ever read and like i i don't know if this counts as a stephen king hot take but i think his best stuff like the things that he writes the best is when he has the most obvious author insert characters like when when his like main antagonist or main protagonist is like a struggling writer with a sketchy background like that's when his stuff is really good oh yeah 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 when it's like oh oh look it's a successful writer that's dealing with former addiction issues that lives in maine i'm like yes that's that's that that's that pure uncut stephen king schlock that i need yeah when he starts when he starts to to stray a little bit that's when we get that's when we get the bad stephen king oh dear but occasionally people turn his awful books into wonderful movies uh, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Hello, everybody. It's it's your it's your horror vanguard for the week. I'm John, otherwise known as the Liquid Guy, and joined as ever by Ash. How are you doing? Are you ready to clock on for your shift? Oh, I am. I was I was born during the graveyard shift. I I live for this. This is what I'm here for. I am already in the the soaking wet sub basement, hosing down some rats. I am ready to go. We're we're gonna have some we're gonna have some fun today, folks. We are talking about the uh, uh, nineteen ninety adaptation of a Stephen King short story uh, called Graveyard Shift. Now, it's it's not one of the uh, better known King adaptations. It's not one of the big ones. Should be um, should be because this movie fucking slaps. But <laughs> in case in case you haven't seen it, um, or in case it's been a while, maybe you saw it uh, late late on cable one night as a kid as always my good friend ash is here to tell me you and everybody else listening what graveyard shift is all about so no spoilers but i'm gonna love this episode because i get to talk about one of my favorite animals for the next hour so this is like seven-year-old ash gets to do an episode the titular phrase, the graveyard shift, calls to mind lonely nights tending some godforsaken job while one's only other companions are the fellow denizens of midnight. The phrase graveyard shift doesn't arise from mortuary labor, but from the midnight hour itself. The stillness of night and the stillness of the grave have been ever entwined in the hearts of humankind. 
It seems as if there's a pull of darkness, a death urge that weaves together harbingers of a well-earned, if permanent, respite. It also drives humanity into kinship with those emissaries of the natural world that daywalkers would have us treat as some kind of plague. Rats have long been a companion of the human endeavor. Since our first attempts at sorting food, we've had these chittering opportunists finding abundance in our refuse. There are many lessons to draw from the allegory of the rat, but I would turn our attention to the rat as a harbinger of horror. Rats are one of the Gothic's most troubled icons, at once a symbol of dread writhing within the natural, but also an anti-Semitic trope. Any exploration of genus Rattus must engage with the full depth of how this animal has become extruded, both literally and figuratively, in the course of human expression. How have we come to take this animal in particular and elevate it to the position of near-total revulsion? Yes, the rat is a vector of zoonotic illness and an invasive species in many corners of the globe, but these are systemic and structural faults in the grinding of human machinery, not inherent to the rat itself. We then enter into the most troubling courtship of the rat in art. The rat is typically read as an external symbol of the vile within the human, but it is more accurately an internal symbol of our own self-assessment. We crawl through the muck and filth of sewers to meet a peer, not a pest. Join us as we scurry into the discourse of Stephen King's Graveyard Shift. Oh, yes. Absolutely. I, okay, so we, we've done quite a lot of work on the show of kind of like refining the concept, the, the dialectical pairing of a Gothic Marxism and ergo a Marxist Gothic. Um, and, oh boy... Have we got a this? If if we were if we not that we believe in such a thing, but if we were constructing like a, a kind of canon of films that fit that that um, intellectual and critical uh, terminology, this would be like slap bang in the middle of it. This is one hundred percent going to be a flagship text in a in a future horror vanguard does a book book. Because uh, it this film this film. I I love so much about this movie, but um, we're gonna have we're gonna have a good time. But should we begin uh, as we as we always do by clocking on uh, and entering the formalism, the formalism zone. zone? Hell yes, we should, and we should start our trip in the formalism zone by shit talking one of the most successful horror authors to ever live. Yeah. Yeah, let's 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 go. The person who revitalized American horror writing throughout the 20th and 21st century probably has introduced more people to horror writing than maybe anyone alive. Uh let's 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 smack him around. <laughs> so I think I think I mean we 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 like to we like to give Stephen King his licks here on the show, um, but ge- generally I think you and I both enjoy a lot of his writing. It, it's false aside, you know. He 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 self describes as the McDonald's of American horror, and I think there's something incredibly earnest and true about that. Mm-hmm. Like if you approach him as the McDonald's of horror, like you're gonna get what you're gonna get, you know. Yeah, like, ex- don't, don't exactly. come here looking for Poe. Uh, exactly. Um, honestly lots of lots of his writing is not great it's very very like pulp uh and i mean that in the good and bad sense of the term um particularly uh he's been criticized a lot and rightly by um uh writers who are not white 
Because the the way that Stephen King handles race is notoriously not good. Um, Stephen King is really good at writing straight, cisgendered, heterosexual white men who have a past relationship with addiction but are currently successful writers. If you are that person, Stephen King will represent you. Yeah, and you, oh, you I forgot are, about that. You have to be in Maine, too. <laughs> yeah, if you are a Maine-based writer who back in the 70s was maybe doing too many lines of coke and drinking too much, Stephen King is, is you will feel seen. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody else, maybe not so much. Actually, the one thing that King is good at, the one thing that King is actually really good at and has done just repeatedly throughout his career is the idea of, is specificity of place. Oh, yeah. And the idea that underneath the quote unquote normal uh there is this there is this kind of like teeming horror um and you know you can you could list off like two dozen stephen king books which do exactly that um and yeah okay he's repeating himself he's doing the same kind of thing but really it, it can be super effective it can work it can get you i mean he just does variations on theme you know, like you don't, you don't have to like as as an artist, you don't have to like constantly reinvent yourself when you're making new things. You can keep doing variations on your core and central theme and make great art. Like he's McDonald's, one one billion served by Stephen King horror. You know, like the, this isn't some fine dining experience where there's no menu and the chef just whims together something fancy. Like you you roll up to the Stephen King and you you say I'll take one main based author horror movie please yep. and then you, you drive to the window and you get what you get yeah absolutely uh, and there is there is absolutely a place for that um in the 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 80s and 90s when king was like very very bankable there was a whole host of Stephen King adaptations like n- just churning them out Literally, um, if Stephen King wrote something, it is a movie or a TV movie or a TV show. Uh, and that that brings us to, to, to this one. That brings us to Graveyard Shift. <laughs> so, so what do we think about Stephen King adaptations in general? Or, more, or I should say, more importantly, what does Mr. Stephen King think about adaptations of Stephen King? Uh, they're a little bit ropey, let's be honest. Some of them... <laughs> And his his so he he very famously doesn't like Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining, um, to the point he, where he went and did and made his own. Yeah, it's it's not good. <laughs> it's Extra not, not very, good. It's just not very good, especially in contrast to Kubrick. Um, he's famously a big fan of two of the more serious adaptations of his work. So he's a big fan of Stand by Me and uh, Shawshank Redemption, both of which I think are pretty good movies. Yeah, and then there's a there's a lot of like mid budget stuff, you know, stuff that was made, if not on the cheap, then not not with like serious money and serious kind of like big name uh, directors or actors in it. And Graveyard Shift is one of them, Um, which and he's he's famously said he doesn't like this. He thinks it's like a a cheap exploitation picture. Um, and it is, and that's precisely why it's so good. <laughs> I, I think I think we can even chart an inverse relationship that is mostly true, that when Stephen King dislikes an adaptation of his work, it's actually really good. And when he likes the adaptations of his work, they tend to be less good. Yeah, I think I think Stand By Me is is often in places quite saccharine. Um, but I I, I I think it still holds up. Um I mean, but, to, yeah. to stand by me is McDonald's level nostalgia. 
Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. Uh, but this, this is really good. <laughs> this, this is, is this just... movie is like, man, I was on the, like, the edge of my seat watching this. The whole runtime flew by. Like, this was, I have, like, no complaints. This was great. <laughs> uh, it's, it's got some, it's got some pretty good practical effects. It's got, um, it's got some, uh, it's got, a couple of just deeply compellingly weird acting performances. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I'm thinking particularly of the exterminator and the the foreman, who were just like just again again not not bad uh, and not good, but like just some weird choices being made. But it's really watchable, um, and it's got like a plot that you've seen. It's a classic Stephen King plot, right? You want you you're in a small town in somewhere in New England, and there is something strange happening at the local mill. I mean, and that's like that's like the ideal. This is kind of like a platonic ideal Stephen King movie. Okay, so I have a theory. I have a theory that I wanted to. I wanted to just see what you think. Hit, hit, hit me. Okay, so this is like the the kind of catalyst of the plot here is like the loner arrives in town and needs a job, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a whole host of films like this. Um, maybe maybe like a really good um, kind of cousin of this film would be something like Roadhouse. I, I was literally tweeting about this while watching it, but this is a spiritual sequel to Roadhouse in every way, shape, and form. So like the stranger arrives in town, gets a job at the local institution, there is a there's some sort of corruption that has to be fought against. But I have a theory as to why you don't really see this kind of film anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and I wanted to know what you think. So like so that the loner arriving in town looking for a job presupposes that like there are stable pools of employment and communities are not like basically liquidated now. And I'm like you don't see contemporary examples of this mostly because we're all the loners who've just arrived in town now, right? We're all, we're all at the whims of the employment market. The idea that there would be a community that maybe you, you grew up in and you got married and there was a job that you could settle down in just doesn't exist anymore, which is why the only, the only films in which you get like the loner arrives in town and has to deal with something are now in the Western. Uh, what, do, what do you think of my theory? <laughs> Well, I, I think this is completely right for, for so many reasons, you know, like a, a thing that I was thinking about while watching this is like one of the reasons why doing this would be so much more difficult today is that rent is just so high everywhere, you know, like you can't just roll into town with a backpack and hope to find a job and a place to live, you know, like that's a, that's, that's very outmoded. And then a lot of like itinerant work here in the United States, like it's like, not like I was thinking of this. Um, they live. There's a bunch of horror movies that kind of have this this plot, you know, this kind of like older affectation of the American hobo. Mm-hmm. And yep. like, I, I think the way that we look at that culturally has shifted so dramatically that like the, these people, like if you are homeless, you know, if you're itinerant, you've been so thoroughly shoved out of the American imaginary space. You know, we're so we're, we, we've moved industrial apparatus so far out of the country that what little is left here is just completely blasted from our ability to see ourselves. And so we enter into this situation where 
there's still a lot of this going on in the in the country, but to depict it would seem strange because we've forgotten it so thoroughly. And of course, the the other big problem is that in this film, workers are allowed to unionize. Oh yeah, yeah. We have to we have to talk <laughs> right. about uh, the the thousands of Scabby the Rat inflatables that are running all over this uh, cotton mill. Um, but. Uh, if if you too if you too would like to support two itinerant podcasters then uh, please do check out the Horror Vanguard Patreon it's at patreon.com slash Horror Vanguard you get access to bonus episodes early access to everything where we record and access to the HV Crypt as well as everything else that we do for our patrons um, and your support helps keep the show going helps us make more episodes and gives us the time that we need to do things like what we're doing this month where we tackle Nothing but requests from viewers and patrons. Sweet, are you ready to clock on for the discourse shift? Yep, I've got my time card. Let's punch in. <laughs> Sweet, oh wow, Mr. Fancy over there has a time card. I have a, a rat <laughs> urine-soaked ball of cotton and I'm ready to go. <laughs> so the first thing we need to talk about, uh, probably the central figure of this movie, and I, I think this is safe to say the central figure of our hearts, the Luddites. Uh, yeah, Ned Ludd. Ned Ludd is the the main character of this. As as with any good horror movie, yes. Uh, do you do you want to flesh that out a little bit? Do you want to- <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Uh, uh, moving on. No. Uh, so so the Luddites, <clears throat> uh, right? So so this movie is set in a cotton mill, which which just just instantly like if you're keyed in to the history of politics and labor is just going to send you screaming back to the Luddites. And, and the Luddites were a historic labor movement that happened at kind of the onset of industrialization, right? This is when mechanized looms and mechanized cotton production was taking over. And the Luddites were a group of, of workers who were like, oh, these machines are going to instantly destroy our livelihood. They're going to make so many of us unemployed while the bosses get rich. And, and their solution to this wasn't to vote the looms out. They decided to vote the looms out with axes. And mm-hmm. uh, yep. that's, that's the spark notes of the Luddites. Um, so the, the peak of Luddite activity in, the, in uh, England is between 1811 to 1812. Um, there were literally hundreds of raids by Luddite groups on um, mills. Uh, looms were smashed. Managers were, uh, were assaulted. Like there were gun battles, the, uh, looms were publicly burned. There were massive public protests. Like one of my favorite bit of like early nineteenth century labor history is um, what happened in France. The uh, I'm trying to remember which uh, in which loom inventor. So there was a loom. Uh, the the Jacquard loom was the inventor of the Jacquard loom arrived in France, uh, and workers tried to assassinate them. Um, and burned the loom in the streets. Um, So the Luddites were, like, by 1813, so a year later, um, several kind of high-ranking suspected Luddites were captured, put on trial, and executed. And that sort of broke the back of the movement. But um, E.P. Thompson, maybe maybe the most famous historian of the 19th century in Britain, says that Ludditism has still to give up all of its secrets because like this is not like spontaneous protest this was like incredibly militant and incredibly highly organized 
Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, like the the, the Luddites pre, the Luddites prefigure a lot of like labor organizing and labor politics as industrialization increases, and and that phrase the Luddites haven't given up their their secrets yet. I think is is so powerful because we live in a time where like. I, I mean, like every time I go to a grocery store and I see a self-checkout machine, you know, like like automation in, in general, I'm like, this is the the the, the luddites. The there's like a lobe in my brain that is just ludditeism, and it lights up <laughs> all of the time. Yeah, I think it's important to point out, right? So luddite has often become um, something that gets, that gets thrown at, at people who are like. Oh, um, if you don't have an iPhone, you're a Luddite. Oh, yeah, you're a technophobe. You're a technophobe. But it's like, I, 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 it's important to point out, like, Luddites were weavers. They were they were skilled artisans. They were skilled mm-hmm. um, producers. And the problem was not technology per se, right? The problem was that they recognized almost immediately that this technology was going to fundamentally alter their lives for the worse yeah, no, yeah. The, the problem, the problem with social relationships to technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, exactly. like a, a, automating cotton picking isn't inherently the problem. It's the fact that that process exists in a capitalistic system, when automation means everyone is now unemployed. No one has anything. Everyone gets to suffer, except for Elon Musk. I'm sorry, uh, except for a uh, 1800s cotton mill owner. I'm sorry. Uh, I, don't, yes. I don't know how I could have gotten those two confused. <laughs> um, so, so this this uh, cotton mill, um, it was filmed actually at one of the oldest. Uh, I think the, the oldest, oldest, yeah, the oldest cotton, cotton mill, in, mill Maine. in the United States. Um, so this is the kind of backbone of the town. It's where everybody has to work. The work there is very physically demanding. The foreman is uh, kind of like dangerous. And um, is making people work holidays. That's a big plot point. Is um, getting getting new and vulnerable workers who are pre-union contracts, getting them to work the July Fourth weekend. Uh, so this is like this is this is this is a film that is deeply tied into not just the kind of like the the themes, but like the symbolic grammar of issues of like the Luddites, issues of Taylorism. Um, which uh, if the Luddites were the 19th century response to labor automation, um, the the response to uh, Taylor's management of the factories was equally vicious. Absolutely. Um, like uh, the, the Massachusetts, the Massachusetts strike in 1911, where um, engineers and molders just walked out of the factory because they'd introduced the stopwatch, Right. Technology mm-hmm. is not is 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 about the quantity of labor that you can get through, right? And the way that you do that is you buy you do it by treating workers as kind of like cogs in the machine. Yeah, and this has been this has been the entire process of industrialization, and, and I think that's why, or part of the reason why Graveyard Shift is just like so, such a powerful movie for me because it's it's like a really late example of. Like this is this is a cotton mill that that they're at, right? This is this is an antiquated depiction of labor and labor organizing, but it's still so relevant today because we're we're in the exact same moment in the exact same situation. Uber hasn't made Uber is a new technological advancement. It has not made the lives and work of cabbies any easier. It's made it extremely difficult 
and it's shattered union power. And that's the function of new technology under capitalism is, is to concentrate wealth and shatter the power of the working class. Yeah. And so the whole point in this film is like, it's not that like the, the factory itself is inherently bad. It's like if that factory was uh, in the hands of the hands of the Luddites, maybe everything would have worked out a lot better. Right. Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like the technology, it wouldn't, it wouldn't look the same. It wouldn't be a cotton mill. You know, like, like it wouldn't be the same social construction. It wouldn't be the same physical technology. You know, like this whole thing is a holistic reworking of our relationship to production, right? Cotton mills exist to produce for profit, not produce for need, you know? So, so the eternal grinding of, of the mill running 24 seven, necessitating a graveyard shift in dangerous conditions, burning through humans constantly uh, that is a is a technology we should be afraid of because that's a technology that's been killing us for hundreds of years. Yeah, yeah, hundred um, percent. Should we? I know, I know. You may have mentioned this in the pricey, but should we talk <laughs> about? Should we? We've talked about the Luddites, but should we talk about another icon of the labor movement? Should we talk about the figure of the rat? <laughs> yes, we absolutely need to talk about the hundreds of little scabby the rats that are running scabby, this movie. Scabby. <laughs> <laughs> reminding us how bad the foreman of this cotton mill is. Right, so, so what do you think about the rats in this? What do you think about them? So I, I think there's a lot of interesting things that we can kind of unpick with the figure of the rat in this movie. And I kind of want to start off with the rat as, as an eco-gothic figure, right? Because rats are uh, y- uniquely stripped of agency, in a way it's a rat isn't like a, a bear in a horror movie or a dragon or something because there's kind of like a dragon bat rat later in this movie that operates differently than the rats themselves you know rats rats are a swarm they're a tide right you know they're they're represented more akin to a flood than they are to like a a, a wolf with rabies you know and in in the context of this movie right there's there's like this kind of like really beautiful dichotomy that gets split up because we have we have the workers who are in effect human rats being ground in this fucking machine and then we have the humans who are in turn reproducing that behavior to the rats right instead of and that's that's wasted effort right like instead of recognizing rats as their natural position in the world Right. And how can we then correct the placement of this mill and its operation in such a way that one, it's not infested with rats. And two, we don't have to have um, a, a fascist SS officer running around with a handgun beating rats to death with a fire extinguisher. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> which is which is a direction that we're going to be talking about in just a bit. <laughs> I mean, I mean, rats in horror you know there's there's very famous examples the rats and the wolves um and yeah there's a direct parallel here between the death of workers and the ultimate disposability of workers in the factory and the ways in which that violence is then meted out on on onto the rats themselves and i really like i really like the comparison there this idea of them as like an eco gothic kind of natural force that doesn't seem to that doesn't isn't credited with any agency that isn't credited with any kind of like uh what's the word intellect right and i think what's what's always telling about me is like i've had pet rats right and like rats are like naturally very chill which is why like every every horror movie i see with rats i'm just like man 
this is this is so this is so serving an ideological function that does not vibe. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't doesn't vibe with your own experiences. But there is there is this kind of like uh, there's this very long history of like the what, what the relationship between humans and rats, right? You know, for a very long time, rats were blamed for plague and disease. Uh, as you pointed out, there are lots of um, pejorative stereotypes for um, and pe- pejorative uses of rats in horror, um, and and like in a way, there's a kind of dialectical relationship here, right? That rats rats are seen as like parasitic on human. Uh, particularly humans in an urban setting, you know, mm-hmm. rats will get into you. But it's like it—it's it, very easy for us to displace any of our culpability for like cre- having having a system that creates huge amounts of waste and huge amounts of inefficiency. Yeah. And we go, oh well, oh the rats make everything so so uh, unpleasant. And it's like, well, where? Let's unpick that, you know? Yeah, right. And it's I'm so happy you brought up the bubonic plague is a phrase that I get to say more often than most people. Um, <laughs> but like, we, what we have is an interesting mirroring between the bubonic plague and coronavirus, not through rats, thank God, but through the fact that most of the human suffering that's going on right now is not a byproduct of the natural phenomenon that is the specific viral strains of coronavirus. Um, you know, we've seen that in like, you know, like there are still countries out there where vaccine rollout is hobbling along or not happening and uh the united states where vaccine rollout is as as good as it's going to ever be uh we, we still have the highest infection and death rate you know like the 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 functional terror of coronavirus is a social technology levied against the surplus army of labor Right, like it's not this disease isn't so super dangerous that this has to be the way that things are. This disease could just be completely avoided if it wasn't for the fact that capitalism can never stop. And rats have an interesting position in the bubonic plague because it was largely a very similar situation, right? Like, you know, a lot of plague terror could have been mitigated with a better social system in place. And yeah, sure, hindsight is twenty twenty for the plague. I can hear you thinking that out in the audience, there, listeners. Thank you. Um, <laughs> But like, you know, like the rat becomes a scapegoat, right? The rat becomes exactly what you're saying, right? Like, you know, we, we, we look at like a filthy city landscape and we go like, oh, if we can only get rid of these rats. But I, I think, and this will lead us to talking about uh, uh, definitely, definitely not friend of the pod and uh, another bad Tucker, Tucker Cleveland. Um, but w- once we start, once we start buying into that logic, buying into the logic of like, okay, rats are awful. We need to exterminate all the rats. Okay, now 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 we're we're dipping a toe into exterminationist logic. Yeah, and and, well, and that, well, that toe quickly becomes a full body swim. Well, you you used the the my 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 the, my activation phrase uh, <laughs> because because you talked about the scapegoat, um, which which triggered like I'm I'm uh triggered my Rene Girard Manchurian <laughs> candidate phase, uh. So if we're talking about it, you, you, you're exactly right um, as to the role and function of the scapegoat, right? So this point of the scapegoat is that all of the um, all of the sins and guilt of the community are projected outward onto the scapegoat. The scapegoat then has to be destroyed in a ceremonial way to allow the coherence and continuity of the community, right? The, the violence of capitalist labor has to be 
placed onto the onto the figure of the rats, which then have to be violently exterminated in order to secure uh, the the existence and perpetuation of that violent capitalist system. Which brings us on to maybe the gr- I, I think maybe my favorite character in this film, uh, played by Brad played by Brad Dorf, who I just love. Uh, yeah. Oh my god, Brad, he is so fucking good in this role. Like everybody else in this movie felt kind of like a stock character. Not 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 in yeah. a bad way, yeah, yeah. but in like a, these yeah. are very like these are easy roles to act. You know, like like they're very they're very typical. But but he's like deranged and he sells it and like the the way he talks to people, the the way he he has Tucker's character talk to people is so uncomfortably close emotionally and physically. Like whenever he's on screen, I'm just like, oh God, please go away. <laughs> Yeah, I, just just deeply, compellingly weird. Um, but also so evil. Plays, oh, oh, completely, like genuinely unhinged and terrifying. Um, he plays the incredibly named Tucker Cleveland, <laughs> who is who is a a former a former veteran of the Vietnam War, and now a genocidal rat exterminationist. I'm just gonna I'm gonna read you really quick uh, two two of Tucker Cleveland's lines, and I won't I won't be able to affect the same delivery, but bear with me. Uh, there's only one way to deal with their kind, and do you have any idea what a VC rat eats? Try raw whole American male. Um. Yeah. So uh, yeah. Uh, hashtag problematic. Um, Tucker Carlson canceled. Uh, Tucker yep. Carlson. Oh, that was the Freudian slip we were all waiting for. Wait. <laughs> um, yes. So this is this is a a like this is a war, right? And this is it's tied up in 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 this language of like violence, of of like imperialism, of genocide. And at no point does anyone else in the movie be like, "Hey, maybe this is going a little bit far. Maybe there's something else going on here." Well, I think um, I think a really important thing to, to point out is that what Tucker Cleveland is doing isn't isn't war. It's ensconced in the language of warfare, but that's propagandistic. But this is about a profit. This is about a system, right? And and what Tucker I keep saying Tucker Carlson, <laughs> what Tucker Carlson is doing um, is 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 moving things one step beyond that, right? This is exterminationist, you know, like like wars wars have like some kind of there's like a like you you want to like seize a body of land you know or you want to like you want to kill the king to become the new king or something but this is extermination you know like like this doesn't stop until every rat is dead and he's hell bent on that and and he's lost himself totally and he's using this kind of fascist eugenicist language to express that yes yeah absolutely um but it's like this is this is that's the that's the broader logic that underpins um like how we are supposed to feel about rats because really yes. the rats are not it, it like it it's a way of of a kind of genocide on the natural right you know it's it's the ultimate logic of capital of how capital and capitalism sees the natural world if the natural world cannot be turned into an asset, it has to be exterminated. And, and we see this so clearly. And like, which political group does does Tucker Clevelandson uh, unite the rats with? It's the Viet Cong. 
Yep, absolutely. Right? So his exterminationist rhetoric is simultaneously racist and anti-communist, and it's weaving all this stuff together, and this reaches a hand back into a history of rats being an anti-Semitic iconography. And, and like, the fact that his character is just so unhinged and troubling, like, like this is how you should see fascists. They're yes. all Tucker yeah, yeah, yeah. Cleveland. Yeah. They're all these, yep. these, these greasy, depraved weirdos. No, no matter how many Brooks Brothers suits you put on. Absolutely. So, uh, now, now that we've talked about Tucker Cleveland, do we also want to talk about another one of this show's villains, OSHA? <laughs> uh, yes. Yes, we should. So, let's, um, let's, so, let's talk so about the do, Occupational Safety and Health Administration. When did OSHA make their appearance in this film? Um, right off the bat. <laughs> It's it's not it's not like officially OSHA I don't think it, I don't think it, like we he's wearing like an OSHA hat, but there's but there is a a lowercase occupational safety and health administrator who pays a visit to the cotton mill, and like he's literally tripping over jagged bits of metal and there's rats everywhere and it's like flooding and there's like water dripping from the ceiling, and he looks at the mill owner and he's like yeah this place is like fucked dude, you can't open this, <laughs> it's a death trap. And then the guy's like, oh, well, how about you give me and my my two friends, my two friends both named Benjamin, uh, two weeks to figure this out. Mm, uh, so he yeah. bribes he bribes the the OSHA official. Uh, and there, there are a couple of things about this, right? Which is like, this is what happens when you have a massive decrease in, like, what, what, is, what is one of the biggest drivers of union militancy, right? Everyone, like the common anti-union... Uh, position is unions are corrupt because all they care about is money and actually that's not true historically and actually even today union struggles are primarily uh, 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 yes wages are super important hours are super important but the other big thing is conditions of labor yes right the big thing that has historically triggered unionization campaigns is safety at work safety and uh, safety and dignity at work right so this idea that unions are just about, uh, you know, try, trying to line the pockets of with union Jews, it's just, it's, it's one of the oldest uh, anti-worker kind of lines of propaganda that you can hear. But it's like, this is this is this is what happens when workers are not listened to, when workers when workers' demands are not met, and when workers have no political and organizing power in their workplace, is that they end up in conditions which are which are like comically dangerous. <laughs> Right. And I think I think this also elucidates kind of a problem with because that is one like the functions of the union is to ensure like wages, hours and conditions. Right. To make sure that it's safe that you work there, you're working reasonable hours and you're getting compensated for your labor in, in, a, in a way that is fair and respectable. Right. Like that's the function of the union. And a lot of deregulation offloads that to either the business itself or to some kind of generic governmental body who's supposedly doing this work. And OSHA does a lot of really good work. Not, not to hate on OSHA, but systemically what happens is you get like a bunch of underpaid, overworked bureaucrats that are now like, that is like the prime, you're, you're just priming someone to be bribed at that point. Yeah, so 100%. You're, you're creating a system where still the conditions of their labor are out of the hands of the people who are actually working at that site. Yeah, deregulation deregulation and self-regulation are code for worker exploitation. Mm -hmm. 
Simple as Absolutely. that. Uh, so so let's, this is... let's, let's talk about that, shall we? Let's talk yeah. about how this film and how this factory treats its workers. So so like like almost every movie we talk about, this movie wouldn't exist if there was like robust and militant unionism. Full, uh, full although, stop. <laughs> although although apparently unlike unlike many of them, unlike many of them, uh there is a union in this film. Which or at so, least the workers are unionized. I think we need to talk about the union in, in this movie because I think this is so interesting to me because there is a union and they go out of the way to say that like, Oh, like you, you've got your four week probationary period, then you can join the union. Um, and he's hyper exploited in that four week probationary period. Um, go figure. If you've ever worked a job, that yeah, had what a probationary are the odds? period, what are the odds? Um, but one thing that I found really interesting is the union is like not actually present in the movie. It's only referenced. Yes, absolutely. You, we, we never see like the union representative. None of the other employees seem to be part of this union besides um, Jane Wisconski, who has quite possibly the greatest last name I have ever heard. <laughs> I just, knew you would appreciate it. Just a, just a salute to every Wisconski out there. That is beautiful. It's like, oh, that's, it's like a bird song. It's music in my ears. Um, but like, you know, we, we never, we never see like a lot of like, like union stuff. There's no union. There's not a lot of union iconography. Um, we never see like a union meeting. There's no union reps. Like the union is physically absent from the movie and only kind of referenced by the movie. Yes. Yeah. So it, it, it means that the, the, the workforce, like that probationary period is a su- is a super um, common thing, and it's a very clever thing from the point of view of management because it gives you four weeks to get the absolute most uh, out of a worker in terms of like return on their labor before you actually have to start treating them decently. It's basically like, can you maximize the amount of free work they will do for you, which in turn incentivizes things like high staff turnover and churn, so that way you can keep constantly hiring more people, as we yep. will get onto. Yep, as and we I've- will get onto. I've also worked at a lot of places that the probationary period will last for weeks, if not longer, and you're a seasonal employee, which means by the time you're eligible to join the union, you've got about two months left on your contract. Uh, yes. Yeah. Which which is why union struggles, uh, especially in the UK now, have focused on um, universalized access to the, to the right day one access, right? Mm-hmm. If yeah. you are... If you're hired, you are enrolled. You can be, you can enroll in the union at the same time, um, because otherwise, th- this is what you get. You get you get um, companies that will keep you as seasonal, keep you as a contractor, keep you as a flexible worker, mm-hmm. and will deny you the deny you not the privileges but the rights that you're owed and you deserve. Absolutely, but nevertheless, the union is doing good things in this movie. It's very clear. That the owner of the cotton mill is weary of the union, as well he should be. The union also uh, saves Jane Wisconski after. Uh, so, so the the owner of this mill, has, uh, like like many bosses do, sexually assaults his workforce, right? Because exploitation never stops at one vector. Once once the door is opened, it's opened everywhere. Um, and you know, like she retains her job and her position because of her relationship to the union. So the union is doing good things, but I think it's interesting that it's reduced to this spectral force and we see it emerge through our characters, right? There's this amazing scene 
with like like part of the floor collapses and they're like hosing rats out of this this half flooded sub basement for some reason they think that's gonna that was baffling to me but like the you know the the boss is down there and he's like okay like you two crawl into that sub basement and keep hosing rats and um our our protagonist is like you know i really think management should be represented when we go down into the evil hole full of demon rats because what if i find (laughs) treasure i don't want to be accused of stealing anything yeah i love that and and i'm everyone everyone just kind of like all all the workers just kind of nod and the boss is like fuck and i'm like okay like there's there's the union emerging in the film even though it's not directly manifested uh but yeah just think how much how much worse it could be right you know, you start off working the graveyard shift. You've got uh, a month before you can count as a union employee. Like, uh, you know, it's like uh, this. This film is very good at literalizing alienation and worker exploitation. Like, make it in, making it into a literal, like, uh, destruction of the body. Um, you know, this is like <laughs> gra- graveyard shift based on the book. Capital Volume One by Karl Marx. <laughs> well, so I, I thought Stephen King's short story was actually uh, his version of Capital Volume Four: Colon Graveyard Shift. Oh yeah. Shift. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's you know, given that we've been talking a lot about workers and employers, given that we've been talking a lot about like the the kind of class dynamics of this, do you want to do you want to talk a little bit more about like the working class? Oh yeah, let's make everyone on Twitter real mad. Let's have some fun. <laughs> Let's put, let's let's stir stir the hive. Uh, so, what is the working class? All of a sudden, I'm wearing like a science lab coat, and I've got a chalkboard behind me and one of those pointers. What is the working class, <laughs> students? I'm pointing now to to the to the chalkboard behind me. Uh, you'll see on you'll see on my chalkboard. I have drawn two words. Uh, we have material definitions of class, and then we have aesthetic definitions of class. Material definitions of class are defined by relationships to the means of production. Mm-hmm. That This is the good one. Aesthetic definitions of working class de- de- are defined by how much you look like someone in a commercial for a truck. That's the bad one. Thank you for coming uh, to my lecture. Yeah, as, as simple as that, right? This is, this is not a super complicated point. No, um, which, yeah, this is, this is just, again, look at the billboard. <laughs> Uh, class is a class is a material relationship about one's one's um, relationship to uh, ownership of the means of production, uh, and about whether uh, you're in the position of having to sell your labor, um, however that happens, in a way that allows you to survive. Yeah, definitely. And so we've entered into like there are. So many, I see so many comments floating out there in, in the, the dark ether of the internet where people are like, oh, you're not working class if you're a nurse or you went to college. Teachers aren't working class. Uh, podcasters and artists aren't working class. And this is the most ridiculous. That, that is, oh, oh, physically pained thinking of this. Like, that's the most ridiculous shit I've ever heard. That is an aesthetic definition of working class. And that is at best. A, a conservative liberal business model approach to what class is. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's inventing an image of what you think the working class is and then projecting it outwards and discarding anything that doesn't 
match that. Right. And even Obvi- obviously, obviously, mm-hmm. as primary modes of survival, as primary modes of selling one's labor shift in response to shifts in what uh, Marxists would call the relations of production shift historically. Of course, what it means, what what the what the working class quote unquote looks like is always going to be something that changes as well. Yes, absolutely. And and this is and, and this is even more important if you're on the left, right? And and however you want to define that, right? However you want to define the left broadly speaking, right? Like transcend the aesthetic definition of working class and enter the realm of material definitions of class. You know, like that that is that is that is being a wrecker, that is no fun for anyone. Uh evil dragon dragon bat and management like that definition of the working class which is why we don't like that definition that is a boss baby mentality yeah <laughs> absolutely i'm i'm so labor kyle pilled it is like over for me <laughs> <laughs> all, all the best people are that's true <laughs> well um should we should we should we talk about the horror of this horror movie then? Um, because to me, there is one image in this film which is genuinely sort of chilling, um, which yes. is right at the right at the end. The very final shot of the film is someone hanging up a sign outside the factory that says, "Now hiring under new management." Woohoo! Just ah, uh, just ah, uh, just. Oh, feel feel the shudder run that, through you. Legitimately, it is terrifying because if you're like keyed in to management changes at all, like it, it never means that things are going to get better. It just means that the deck chairs are being rearranged. The ship's mm-hmm. still going down, still going down for the same reasons and at the same pace. Things are just looking a little different now. Uh, yes, and and that's how this film ends, right? There is. We will get onto the, the 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 creature in this creature feature in just a little bit, but like substantively, no real change has taken place that we that we know of. Right, management is still in charge. The union is probably still kind of like semi absent from the scene. Um, workers are still going to be exploited. This this mill is still uh, uh, literally running on their on their flesh and blood. But hey, there's new management, and it's like oh. Nothing changes. <laughs> and, and, and the way the way it ends too is really important in terms of the language of cinema, right? Uh, it's a very abrupt fade on that sign. It, it's like a very sharp, quick fade after, and the sign is only up for a second, right? It, it's almost as if it's a flash before you, and then it goes into the credits. But we have a, a song that I think is really important in the credits, and it's like this jazzy kind of music. And overlaid on top of that are samples from the movie, and it's a lot of the mill owner talking, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, so, a lot of the foreman, yeah, yeah. So, what, what, what's kind of extending through the end of this, right? It's under new management, but it's the same voice. It's that same yep. spirit. It's now just a different yep. tone. Um. Yep. Absolutely. Like we we you know one monster might be dead, but like this is this is this is something that comes up a lot, right? Which is like replacing the boss, getting rid of the monster that's that's t- torn apart the people that you work with. 
that doesn't necessarily solve everything. It might make things better for a time, but what changes things fundamentally is changing the relationships of yes. production, a, rev- a, a revolution in social and material totality. Speaking of social and material totality, do you want to talk about a giant gooey dragon rat bat? I absolutely do. I absolutely do. What a, I, what a great monster, right? I love this monster so much. I like. I have very conflicting feelings about this monster because it's disgusting and it's it's like oozing and covered in just like this shredded viscera for hair and it's just it's an awful beast but at the same time like it's kind of cute i kind of want to hug it i don't i can't explain that to you right now but it's also i mean it's kind of i mean it kind of wants to hug you and then maybe drag you into the earth where it can feast upon you but i agree with you don't threaten me with a good time (laughs) (laughs) so so what, Um, what do we make of a rat that has grown to the size of a man from feasting on the oil lamps. Call back to Die You Zombie Bastards. In, indeed. <laughs> well, well, this is this is the kind of fun thing about the, about a good movie, right? You should be able to read it on multiple levels, and so we can just talk about this in terms of like, it's just a cool monster movie. There's something spooky in the basement, but it. But the thing is, as soon as you start down this road, you go, well, it's not just that, is it? It's a rat in a condemned factory that's been feeding on the on the blood and bodies of workers. And it's like that that moment where they emerge back um from underground and they're like covered in mud and blood. I was just thinking of that famous Marx quote, mm-hmm. you know, capital emerges from the grave, blood dripping from every pore. Um this is this is just a super gothic Marxist movie. Yeah, 100%. The monster is literally Galerte manifested, right? It is the industrial soup into which all humans are ground, made into a being. And of course, it takes the form of a rat, right? So this is some kind of, this is, this is a rat with agency. This is the collective of rats made into a single being. This is some winged rat king that is coming after people. And this is like... This is the gothic Marxism knob, and we're at 11 now. Yeah, I, absolutely. Um, like, the relationship of the workers to it, one of them is, like, terrified and says he doesn't want to die. One of them is, like, uh, has their arm torn off in, like, a gruesome parody of an industrial accident. But the one that seems most drawn to it is the foreman, uh, Warwick, mm-hmm. who is who is just so... A deeply weird character <laughs> like i think it's something about the actor's um speech intonation yeah, but the, yeah. What, the, just the way that the way that this character speaks and the way that he kind of looks at people just so unsettling and um warwick seems like kind of in love with it drawn to it drawn to this kind of embodiment of the liquidation of of working uh of workers in 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 his factory um and it's just to kind of when you start thinking about it in those terms, you just see that this is a, like a phenomenally rich metaphor. This is a great union advert, <laughs> right? Yeah, totally. I, and I find that I find it really interesting that he's the one who he and the the this this kind of draconic manifestation of of the pain and suffering of the working class negate each other. 
right? They're, they're, they're mutually annihilated in this conflict, right? And there's, 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 something, there's something about that hinting at the end of class, right? Like, like, like the, 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 the class that is capable of, of finally ending class relations, right? The, the gathered bodies of the, this movie's vision of the oppressed, right? Both naturally through the rat and mechanistically through, through the torn up bodies of humans, uh, yes, absolutely. And, and it's like, always... Oh, go on, go on. And like, how do we defeat this creature? How do we defeat this monster? Um, it's about... You tricked the, the boss. I actually, <laughs> I, actually think, I actually think this is super interesting. Like, yeah. exact, exactly how this ends, which is that it gets fed into the machinery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, and it destroys the machinery in destroying itself. Yes. The, the, the giant rat bat is a Luddite. <laughs> But this is, but this, but that I think is really important, right? Because the the dragon rat bat is is just constantly dripping with goo. It's like oozing throughout its entire being. It, its very construction is refusing to stay solidified, right? This this is a and, and it flies, it swims, it crawls, right? Like it 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 is able to to this this is like a cotton mill, right? This is not a big this is not an easy open air thing for a giant bat to navigate it's not like a cathedral or something so it has this phantasmal motion to it right this is a very fluidic monster right it's it's akin to the shape from the first halloween movie and and that negation at the end i think is really important right because it's this it's this fluidic mass of literally working class parts just just devastating the industrial machinery yeah it's it's the ultimate kind of like it's it's fed parasitically on the working class, right? It's literally the blood of labor that's mm-hmm. returned into the machine. I I don't know how, but I knew I I knew when I saw it for the first time. I was like, Ash is going to want to talk about slime. I am going to want it. <laughs> it's always it's always slime. If it's not if it's not adorable dragon rat bats, it's goo. Uh, I yeah I I knew you were going to want to talk about the goo. Um, that that kind of foundational. Like almost pr- that primal substance. Yeah, it, it's it's completely primordial, right? Like there's there's ooze is threatening to order because ooze is a sign of instability. If something is oozing, it, it is it is currently phasing out of its current form, right? And and we are trained culturally to read oozing as negative, and a lot of that is justified. If your body starts oozing. You know, we're we're looking at a sixty forty that you might need some medical expert to look at that, but there's also a lot of really good oozing that the body does. You know, it's just not recognized, right? Our internal form is just this perpetual sea of ooze. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's the same with our skin. It's our skin is just a sheet designed to ooze over the surface of our body. Yeah, and and this this fearsome relationship to the thing that we inherently are, right, gets externalized. Right. There, there's something and, and this 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 kind of ties into the incompleteness of the ending, the under new management sign. Right. Like like for, for all the effort that our protagonists do, they're still unable to grapple with the fact that this this bat monster is part of themselves. Right. They, they haven't fully connected to their relationship with it. And so the system continues, even if now it's going to reopen and there, it's going to be an app based cotton mill. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You you will be a flexible, independent contractor 
who uh, gets 20 minutes notice of when a shift is available for you. Um, uh, shifts will be like between 90 and 600 seconds and you'll have to like clock in and clock out instantaneously. Yeah, and any any talking docked on your pay. You're, you're gonna you're gonna yeah. wear one of those like yeah. cursed ID tags that has a little like microphone on it, so it can tell if you're speaking and and like get you in trouble for it. Yeah, the the new management are gonna demolish the 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 cotton mill and turn it into an Amazon fulfillment center. Well, so okay, so here's here's something that's really interesting, and maybe we can go out on this. Do you know what the filming location is today? Uh, I, I don't know what it is today. Why, I'm glad we're having this conversation then because it's an EPA Superfund site. <laughs> oh, of course it is. Of course it is. <laughs> Sp- speaking of a horrific ooze you probably don't want to go near. Oh, my goodness. Uh, much much like Stalker. So, <laughs> so, that's so perfect. Yeah, we have to go out on that. <laughs> And, and that, that for me, that is the under new management sign, right? Because yes. what is the new yeah, management yeah. now? Like, oh, oh, it's it's so horrifyingly toxic that even the United States government is like, uh, maybe we got to get somebody here. Yeah. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us on this super fun side of an episode. My name is Ash. You can find me at Twitter at Daryl Vanya. I'm joined, as always, by... Uh, well, I, I'm on Twitter at the Liquid Guy. Uh, so come say hi. Yeah, bring, and, bring all the rats. Send us pictures of your pet rats. Rats are nice. And just before we, you know, just one last thing before we wrap up. This has been requests month. Uh, we get so many requests and we love, we love getting requests of things that you'd like to see, uh, you'd like to hear us cover on the show. Um, so please do send us requests on social media um, at Horror Vanguard on Twitter. Please um, do let us know if you're a patron of the show. If there's a film that you'd like us to cover, we keep track of we keep track of them as best as we can. Uh, and even if we don't think a particular film will do, we normally try and pick pick one that's related, or we just cover it outright. Um, but request month has been a hell of a lot of fun, and we'd love to do more of them. So please do. Uh, support the show on patreon as well because this is what allows us to dedicate more time to it hell yeah and i just want yeah just thank thank everyone for sending in these requests because a lot of these are movies that i either never would have watched or never heard of and like that's just so wonderful you know yeah absolutely absolutely you know we 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 have our own tastes in in horror and we we love like uh, you know we like digging through the crates just to see what we might find uh, but getting requests and getting suggestions of things that you would love to hear us talk about uh, is just amazing. So please do keep letting us know if there is a f- uh, if there's a film that you think has got some good HV discourse in. Um, can't wait to hear about them. Well, thank you, everyone. We'll see you all in tomorrow's graveyard shift. We hope you've enjoyed the dread discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.